for a moment. Lord God, we do pray that you would have your way with us. We thank you that you have spoken clearly in your word, and we ask and pray sincerely that you would give us ears to listen and the will to obey what we hear today. We pray this for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I invite you to turn to <clears throat> Joshua, excuse me, <clears throat> Joshua chapter 24, Joshua 24, where we'll meet a unique nation, the nation of Israel at this point in their history is very unique, no one quite like them before or since. The oldest members of the nation at this time had been born in Egypt. They would have been eyewitnesses to God's victorious plagues over the Egyptians and their false gods. They were just toddlers and teenagers when they walked on dry ground through the Red Sea. The middle-aged folks, they would have had no personal memories of Egypt. After all, they were raised in the wilderness. Their upbringing was one of nomadic wanderings and desert grumblings. And while they did not cross the Red Sea on dry ground, they would have certainly remembered crossing the Jordan River on dry ground under the leadership of Joshua. Some of the youngest citizens of this ragtag nation might not have remembered the wilderness at all. They would have only known life in Canaan, the promised land. They would have witnessed some of those bloody battles as the Lord supernaturally went before them in conquest of the pagan nations that previously inhabited the land. But more recently, the nation as a whole would have been spending their time settling into new homes, into new tribal regions. After all, this was really the first permanent residence that the nation of Israel had ever known. And then there's their revered leader, the faithful Joshua. Remember Joshua? He and 11 others had spied out the land more than 50 plus years earlier. And really, in an act of faith in the Lord and his good promises, Joshua had proposed that they invade the land right then and there, despite the fact that there were giants. He was trusting in God's promise, but he and his courageous friend Caleb came up short on the vote, remember? Ten to just two. But the Lord punished those ten doubting, unbelieving spies and their whole unbelieving, doubting generation with 40 years of wilderness wandering. And he prohibited, prohibited that generation from entering the promised land. Only Joshua and Caleb from their generation had come into the promised land. Well, by the time we reach Joshua 24, Joshua was about 110 years old, and he had called the nation of Israel to a special place, the town of Shechem, on the eve of his own death. And he had some words of covenant renewal to share from the Lord himself. And so I invite you to listen in as we re-encounter Joshua's meeting with the people 
at Shechem before the Lord. Joshua 24, verse 1. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites, but I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornets ahead of you, which drove them out from before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers Serve beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I want to take some time this morning to consider this familiar and famous charge of Joshua, particularly verses 14 and 15. This charge to fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness, to choose for yourselves this day, whom you will serve. You'd be helped to know that variations of the word serve appear some 16 times in chapter 24 of Joshua alone. And in verses 14 and 15, variations of the word serve appear five times. So we'd be doing well to remind ourselves of what the Bible is talking about when it calls us to serve the Lord. To serve the Lord is to work for the Lord, to bow to the Lord as a servant serves his master. Service is faithful obedience to one's rightful king. And furthermore, to serve is to worship. Service and worship are synonymous 
in the Bible, which is why Pastor Doug has reminded us previously that when we gather together as a church, we call this a worship service. Why? It's almost redundant, a worship service. But we do that because we have gathered in this place on this day to serve the Lord, to worship him as his willing subjects. We've come here with our time. You didn't have to come here. We come here with our voices to sing, to serve him. We serve him with our presence and our gifts of tithes and offering. We serve him with our energy and our emotion. We serve him with our ears as we listen to his faithful word, which we're committed to obeying. So the call to serve the Lord is crystal clear in Joshua 24. But before we describe this service to the Lord, I want us to be reminded that this command to the serve the Lord comes in response to a history lesson. You heard that history lesson read from verses 2 to 13, that God has been especially gracious and amazingly powerful among and to his people. He brought Abraham out of moon-worshiping Ur of the Chaldees. He raised up Moses and Aaron to rescue God's people out of slavery in Egypt. He granted victory and blessing to Israel, even when someone tried to curse them in the Transjordan. He led the people in the conquest of Canaan. And then verse 13 acts as a wonderful summary of God's gracious gifts toward Israel. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. One Bible commentator put it this way, Israel could not boast of her prowess. She could not correctly speak of her conquest of the land, but she could glory in her God, who gave her richly all these things to enjoy. He goes on to say, nothing moves the heart and therefore the will like recollections of the grace of God. Isn't that great? Nothing moves the heart and therefore the will, your choices, like recollections of the grace of God. And this isn't just true for ancient Israel. This is true for the Christian church today. Remember, Titus 3 says, God saved us not because of righteous things which we have done, but because of his mercy. Are you in the habit of remembering, recalling, recollecting God's grace to you, especially his grace to you in Christ? Because Warren Wiersbe says, meditating on the goodness of God is a strong motivation for obedience. So I'd like to spend the remainder of our time this morning describing this service to which we're called. We're a grateful people, and we're called to serve the Lord, but what should our service look like? And we'll see in verses 14 and 15 particularly that our service to the Lord must be decisive, daily, and devoted. First, it must be decisive. In other words, it's a choice, a decision to serve the Lord. Notice the strength of Joshua's words in verse 15. Choose for yourselves. Friends, serving the Lord doesn't come by accident. 
It doesn't come by osmosis. It doesn't come by academic pedigree. It doesn't come by being born into the right family. Serving the Lord is a choice that each of us and all of us have to make. Choose for yourselves, Joshua says. Now, it's possible that you're here today and you have never made a, a decisive choice to serve the Lord. You've never turned from sin and trusted Jesus. If you're here today and you're in that category, I want you to know I'm thankful that you're here. I'm thankful that you're in a place where I hope God's word is preached clearly and where you're seeing Christians attempt to live out the life of devotion to the Lord. But I'd ask you, humbly, but seriously, what's holding you up? Have you considered the fact that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave so that you could receive the gift of eternal life? Salvation, it's a gift. You cannot earn it, but you must receive it. And the way we receive the gift of eternal life is with the empty hand of faith, repenting of your sin and believing in Jesus who paid it all. I'd love it if you are not yet a Christian, you call me this week, we can talk about that. Send me an email. If you're here and you're a, a child or a teenager, talk to your parents about whether or not you've really decided to follow Jesus. Talk to your Sunday school teacher, your youth group leader. We want people to come to authentic conversion. While we're all born into this world as rebel sinners, we want to be changed by God, converted, into faithful servants of the Lord. You must be decisive in your service to the Lord. But you also must be serving the Lord daily. Joshua says again in verse 15, choose for yourselves this day, this day whom you will serve. Now to be fair to the context, Joshua has gathered the people together on a very special day, a, a special occasion in a very special place. The place Shechem might not mean much to you, uh, but it would have been very familiar to the people of Israel. They would have remembered, oh, Shechem, that's the place where Father Abraham first set up an altar to the Lord when he came into Canaan. He left behind moon worshiping, and he served the Lord. And Abraham's grandson, Jacob, had a field there, and he also had an altar to the Lord there at Shechem. And not so long ago, this, this same nation of people would have gathered there in Shechem between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal to commit themselves in covenant, vowing to serve the Lord. And so this is sort of a recommitment, a renewal ceremony. But I've got to imagine that if Joshua is calling the Israelites to serve the Lord on that day, he expects them to follow the Lord the next day and the next year and the next decade because service of the Lord is necessarily daily. As verse 14 puts it, we must serve him with all faithfulness. It's an ongoing act of trust and faith in the Lord. Now, I think the evangelicalism and the fundamentalism that most of us in this room have grown up in and around has been very good about calling people to a decision to trust Christ. They understand that following the Lord must be decisive. 
What we haven't always done a great job at is helping people understand that from that point forward, it, it must be daily. It just doesn't stop at a one-time decision. We really like the idea of eternal security, kind of a once saved, always saved, no matter what you do mentality. That's not in the Bible. In the Bible, confidence in your salvation rests on a persevering faith in Jesus. And you need to serve him daily and follow him throughout your life, through the ups and the downs in persevering daily service. So I ask you today, maybe for the first time, but for most of you for the fifth or 50th or 500th time, will you choose to serve the Lord this day and tomorrow and next year? Serve the Lord daily. You know, one way, maybe the best way to cultivate a daily service, obedience, worship of the Lord, is to read your Bible every day. Pastor Bill Search reminded us last week that real peace, lasting peace, peace that the world can't give, it comes to us when we spend time in the presence of God. And we do that by meditating on the true promises of his word rather than fretting about the troubles of this world, right? So if you're not in the habit of reading your Bible daily, I'd encourage you to do so. You start in the Gospels, it's an easy place to start. If you'd like a reading plan, email me. Fill up my inbox with requests for Bible reading plans. I'd be glad to point you to some. But read the Bible daily as an expression of your devotion, your service to the Lord that is daily. Thirdly, I want us to understand that not only is the service to the Lord decisive and daily, it must be devoted. Absolute devotion to the Lord is imperative. There can be no rival gods or idols. Exclusive devotion to the Lord is the only way to truly serve him. Notice that in verse 15, it seems like Joshua gives the people a choice. If they don't really want to serve the Lord, if they find it undesirable or literally evil, as some of your English translations rightly put it, if they think it's evil to serve the Lord, they can choose to serve other gods. But don't misunderstand Joshua here. He's not suggesting that the Israelites have other legitimate options, gods of the same value as Yahweh, the one true God, and that they can just pick and choose whatever works for them. That's exactly not what he's saying. But what he is saying is he's stating the fact that you cannot ride the fence. You will worship someone or something. And you can't be syncretistic about your devotion to the Lord. You add other gods and ideas and worldviews and belief systems and behaviors to your pantheon of gods. No. Devotion to the Lord must be exclusive devotion. Choose this day to serve the Lord alone. This is probably, in my opinion, the most crucial point in Joshua's charge because he knew that the people of Israel, they were vulnerable to all sorts of other kinds of gods. Gods that I'm going to put in two categories, the ancient gods and the contemporary gods. Joshua knows that some people would be lured by ancient gods, 
the gods your forefathers served beyond the river Euphrates and in Egypt. You know, people can sometimes have an unhealthy infatuation with their ancestors and what their ancestors did or worshipped. And this might have been the tendency of the people of Israel. It had been over 750 years, I believe, since Abraham had been called out of that other culture with their erroneous and false belief systems. But for some reason, perhaps out of a, a weird, unhealthy reverence for Abraham or a misunderstanding of what he really did in worshiping the Lord only, the Israelites evidently were tempted to re-engage in these idolatrous ancient ways. That can be sometimes hard for us to let go of traditions even when they're at odds with the Lord himself. So ancient gods are a temptation, but Joshua knows that others in the community, the people of Israel, they'd be lured by contemporary gods, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. Joshua knew that contemporary culture, the culture around you that you live in, is persuasive and influential. And so he warned the people. He had already warned the people in the previous chapter, chapter 23. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. So they had been warned. And again, we are no different than the Israelites. We, as Christians today, live in a world, and we must be exclusively devoted to the Lord, but we too are susceptible to the lures of ancient and contemporary gods. And so to help you understand what I mean by living a, a decisive and daily and devoted life of service to the Lord, I want to give you a couple examples of ancient gods and contemporary gods that might be luring you away from the Lord. One ancient god, which we must throw away, as verse 14 says, is what I'll call the god of self-righteousness. This is that belief system, that, that wicked idea that we can somehow save ourselves by good deeds or meritorious works. It's that way of thinking that arrogantly supposes that we can earn our own salvation by doing good deeds. And, and this is a very dangerous God. If, if you're trusting in the God of self-righteousness, you probably think of yourself as a person who's lived a pretty good life. You, you've lived a, a, a life good enough to measure up to the holiness of God. And probably at the end of the day, your, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. And you're going to be all right, eternally speaking. But that's a dangerous way to live, to trust in yourself and your service and your good deeds, even your good deeds to the Lord. After all, the Apostle Paul, who was quite righteous in his living, said this about his self-righteousness in Philippians 3. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So I want us to throw away the garbage God of self-righteousness and run instead to receive with the empty hand of faith the gift of righteousness that comes through Jesus alone. Another ancient God which we must throw away is the God of people-pleasing. As I said earlier, it seems that the ancient Israelites must have had an unhealthy infatuation with their ancestors. I would suggest that we, too, have an unhealthy infatuation with people and what they think of us. You know, we let friends or family members or bosses or the cultural in general start to call the shots for us instead of the Lord himself because we want to please our friend or our neighbor. We don't want to upset the apple cart in that family dynamic. But friends, exclusive devotion to the Lord, primary devotion to the Lord, is the only way to serve him. Because God is a jealous God in the right sense of the word jealous. He's jealous for his people like a good husband is jealous for the devotion, the exclusive devotion of his wife. A good husband or a good wife will accept no rivals in the marriage relationship. And God will accept no rivals in his relationship with his people. So let's throw away the ancient gods of people-pleasing or self-righteousness or whatever else is from your past and start to serve the Lord, to fear him. But we aren't only vulnerable to ancient gods. We're bombarded with all sorts of contemporary gods, aren't we? We live in a world that's increasingly secular and devoid of all sorts of biblical virtues. And I think it's time that we wake up and recognize just how susceptible we are to serve, to worship, to give our devotion to these contemporary gods rather than the Lord himself. I sincerely spent a lot of time this week thinking about and praying about which examples I might share with you today. Because I don't want to just give you theoretical sermons. I want to help you apply them to your life. And I want you to know that what I'm about to share, I share because by God's grace, I've been called to be your pastor, one of your pastors. And that means I'm here to lead you and guide you and encourage you, yes, but also to protect you and warn you. And I share what I'm about to share because I love you. I love this church. And I want your own good and God's own glory to prevail. So here are two examples of contemporary gods. The first is this contemporary God that is increasingly pervasive among professing Christians. The God of sexual immorality. Now, God created sex to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And it's a good gift. It is a good gift from God. It brings pleasure to couples, and it brings children into the world. But our culture, you know, our culture has obliterated these wonderful boundaries in which to enjoy sex. And so I want to say, if you are here today and you 
are engaged in any sexually inappropriate behavior, if you're engaged in sexual intercourse outside of the bounds of marriage, whether premarital or extramarital affairs, I want you to know that your soul, your soul is on the line. Ephesians 5, Paul says it this way, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. In other words, if you're living in unrepentant, habitual sexual sin, you have no good reason to believe that you're going to heaven. If you have friends, family members who are living that way, and you're kind of sending the signal that it's going to be okay, you're all right with God. At, at least you prayed the prayer when you were six. Shame on you. Shame on us. We need to warn them. And for far too long, we evangelicals, we have kind of turned a blind eye to sex outside of marriage. We, we've looked the other way when couples have chosen to live together before they've made vows of marriage before God and before others in a legal sort of way. And I think we've passively endorsed sexual immorality in the movies and TV shows that we consume and in the sexually suggestive clothing that we sometimes wear. So yes, we've been bombarded, but we're to blame too. And it's time that we right the ship and recognize that the God of sexual immorality is, is destroying our church. It's destroying our church. And so we need to throw that away and recommit ourselves to exclusive devotion to the Lord. Now the culture's gonna tell you that you're missing out. That the experience that you're giving up is just too much to pass up. But I wanna promise you that the Lord withholds no good thing from those who love him. In Psalm 34, he says, those who fear the Lord lack nothing. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. God has good gifts for his people, and his good gifts include good boundaries. A second contemporary God that I want to bring to your attention today that's seemingly less serious but has me greatly concerned as a pastor, is what I'll call the God of Lord's Day neglect. The God of Lord's Day neglect. Allow me to explain. In Revelation chapter 1, we hear Sunday referred to as the Lord's Day. Because each Sunday, it's a reminder that Jesus is Lord. He was resurrected on that first Easter morning. He has conquered sin and death, and he is the risen king. So it sort of sounds old-fashioned, even to me, but I've tried to get in the habit of referring to Sunday often as the Lord's Day because it's this unique day of the week on which I can reflect on what the Lord has done for sinners like me with God's people in places and gatherings like this. The norm in the New Testament is for Christians to gather together to sing and to pray and to hear God's word preached Sunday by Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. It was already a problem, though, in the early church because in Hebrews 10, there's this charge, let us not give up meeting together as some in the habit of doing, but let us encourage 
one another. So, we know that there's a temptation to neglect gathering. There are all sorts of things that are pulling for your attention on a Sunday, but I want you to know that we must not neglect meeting together. I believe with the New Testament and along with the supermajority of Christians throughout history that unless your health doesn't permit or perhaps the health of someone you're caring for doesn't permit, you should be with God's people Sunday by Sunday, no exceptions. That's the norm. The contemporary gods of this age would say, oh, two or three times a month is okay. That's not God's way. You think, Pastor, I'm here. You don't have to preach this sermon to me. But statistically speaking, evidently, there's about a 25% or better chance that you won't be here next week. That's the trend in churches like ours. So let's not neglect meeting together. Because when we neglect the Lord's Day, we steal God's glory that he deserves when he graciously invites us to come into his presence and sing his praises. When we neglect the Lord's Day, think about it this way. You deprive your other brothers and sisters of the encouragement they need when they see you in this place, singing, praying, having meaningful conversations about the ups and downs of your life. And when you neglect the Lord's Day, you do it to the detriment of your soul. Seriously. Where else can you gather with God's people to hear God's word taught by men who are gifted? Where can you hear God's people sing loudly and have a handshake or a hug on an especially difficult week in the community in which you live? Nowhere. This is it. It's not always amazing. It's not always off the charts, but it's a beautiful sort of ordinary. And so we must not neglect the Lord's day. As one Christian blogger put it recently, worship is our weekly detox. It's like we live in this cesspool of sin and grime and filth, and we come to this place and we're reminded of the truth of God's word. He's been gracious. So, seriously, please stop picking recreation over worship. Stop when you're tempted signing up your kids for sports leagues that meet on Sundays. Now, if you're in a profession that requires someone to be on the job, and there are professions like this, I'm thinking like healthcare, public safety, requires someone to be on the job, at the very least, try to get as many Sundays off as possible. Do your part, but get Sundays off. Stop using Sundays to catch up on work projects or to earn overtime. Stop skipping church to catch up on that homework that you should have done on Saturday. And, and when you vacation, you may vacation. Vacation with purpose, though. When you vacation, don't vacate the church. I've been so impressed by my in-laws because they make it a point when they're going to be on vacation somewhere to find a church, a Bible-believing church, with whom they can worship on the Lord's Day. And so for years, they've got to know and love the congregation and pastor at a church called Rocky Mountain Bible Church in Frisco, Colorado. Because when they vacation in the mountains, that's where you'll see them on Sunday morning. We would do well to do the same sort of things. So seriously, thank you for being here on this Lord's Day. I look forward to seeing you next Lord's Day.
and everyone following. Friends, God has been gracious to us as a church, exceedingly gracious to us. In response, our grateful service to the Lord must be decisive, it must be daily, and it must be totally devoted. So may we, like Joshua, state this with boldness. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we need your grace. We need your Holy Spirit and your word to sustain us as we make commitments like this. We trust that you'll do it for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.